most simple terms concept of, of patriarchy is first and foremost about men's voices speaking for everybody else and and women's voices being silenced or 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 confined to a domestic kind of space so radio comes along precisely at a time when women are speaking out and challenging older restrictions. I mean, you have the first radio station in the United States comes on the air the same year that women get the right to vote. So these things are really coinciding with each other historically. And so I think it is something worthy of more examination, especially because when we look at the material, whether it's in Latin America, the United States or Europe, or I'm sure elsewhere as well, when women began to speak on the radio, it was usually a source of controversy. There was a lot of conversation in various places about how women's voices just didn't sound good on the air. You're listening to Radio Survivor, here for the love of radio and sound. And today, we're here for the love of the history of radio and women's voices on the radio, especially in Latin America, where we're going to learn a lot about a very special station in Uruguay that made space for women's voices in the 1930s. My name is Eric Klein, and with me is Jennifer Waits. So we're on the line with Christine Eric, who is professor of history at University of Louisville and the author of Radio and the Gendered Soundscape, Women in Broadcasting in Argentina and Uruguay, 1930 to 1950. Christine, thanks so much for being on Radio Survivor. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And it, it's so fitting that we're recording with you on International Women's Day, and, and our topic is talking about women in radio around the world. Previously on Radio Survivor, we've talked about the often hidden history of women in broadcasting, and, and so I'm excited to hear more from you about women's contributions to the early days of radio in South America. And I thought we would just start by having you tell us the story about Radio Feminina, this station that was not on my radar at all until you brought it to my attention, an all-female, female-oriented station that launched in Uruguay in 1935. So can you tell us what the focus of that station was and, and why it was created? Yeah, well, it's a fascinating story and one that still there are frustratingly large holes in what we know about it. Um, I, I did my best to reconstruct the story of the, the station's history and trajectory. But um, yes, it went on the air in October of 1935. After some back and forth over a couple of years to decide what this last station at the far end of the dial was going to be and what it was going to be named and all sorts of um, uh, kind of unclear negotiations that were going on. Um, when it first went on the air in 1935, my best understanding of the situation is that it really started as more of a commercial venture. A lot of the backing came from Argentine investors and uh, sponsors, including dairy sponsors, who I think were looking to compete with a... Um, a national dairy cooperative that had just been was in the process of being created in Uruguay at the same time. So, um, but so I think the original goal of the station was really to aim at housewives to sell consumer products. It didn't really have a political angle to it. But 
over time, within a year or so of its being on the air, the character of the programming started to change, and the uh, kind of the vacuum that I think was opened up by that station with a name like Radio Femenina, you have all of these kind of intellectual and politically active women who begin to move into the station. And wow. so it, it really transforms quite significantly between about 1936 and 1938. And so you start to see all of this very interesting programming, a lot of uh, female intellectuals. You had women, uh, you know, some of the first, the country's first uh, female attorneys who were doing programs where they were literally giving out advice, legal advice to women and children. And you had um, a significant emphasis on things like women and sports, which I thought was quite interesting. You didn't see that anywhere else on the dial. Uh, programs, you know, exercise programs and things like that. And, um, and then also increasingly um, an emphasis on questions of women's citizenship. Um, part of what's important to understand is that in, in Uruguay, women had received the right to vote in 1932, one of the earlier countries in Latin America where women voted, where women got the right to vote. But then there was a, a kind of coup that happened and there really weren't any elections until 1938. So the station went on the air kind of in that in-between place. Um, and so it, it also became very important um, around these questions of kind of mobilizing and educating and preparing women to exercise their right to vote for the first time in 1938. So who was running, who were the people behind the station who started it? It's interesting to me, you know, you talking about this this shift and this radicalization. So I'm wondering about yeah. that. And if I, what is the infrastructure? And I'd like to, to sneak in a secondary question to that. Is this like an urban station or a rural station in Uruguay in the 1930s? This is very urban. This is the station is based in Montevideo, which is the you know major city in Uruguay. And I would say I would add in there too that this was also a station that undoubtedly would have been um, reachable. Uh, would have reached into Argentina as well. Um, so there was a lot of listening across the river. Um, so and, and there was a, a, indeed quite a bit of excitement in um, mostly Buenos Aires radio press over this station coming on the air and a lot of celebrations and things like that. Um, so and this was a station that was billed as having some of the tallest antennas in, in, in Uruguay and all of that. So it was um, data on actual audience is almost impossible to come by. But the supposition is that this was a station that had a pretty broad listening range. Um, so the um, as far as your question, um, the previous question about ownership, it's it's a little bit opaque. Um, there were certainly, as I said, most of the, the the investors and the sponsors of this station were uh, were male. Um, and again, mostly kind of Argentine entrepreneurs and businessmen who just saw this as a way, they saw the female market as a way to make money. And I think they may have, um, you know, whether they just kind of went along with the transformation that was happening because the station was um, a success. So they figured, well, okay, fine. If it's, you know, the way we, we make money and sell advertising is with these more politically oriented programs, so be it. Um, some changes take place later, which we might talk about in, in the next, ch in, a, in, a, in a later chapter of discussion uh, that had to do with um, 
the the other kind of curiosity of Radio Feminina's story, which is it's um, getting caught up in a an anti-Nazi blacklist in the early 1940s. So that, but that's a that's sort of the, sort of the next stage wow, of yeah. things. A lot going so, on. Yeah, it's it's a complicated and and pretty fascinating story. Um, so uh, yeah, there's very little indication that that the ownership was particularly politically oriented. I, I my guess without any access to any direct um, material to this effect is that they were the station was was doing okay it was making money it had an audience and so they were fine with you know the direction it was going were women running the station as far as I can tell yes um, certainly it seems as though all of the voices all of the broadcast voices on the station were women um, so as far as you know the the kind of engineering stuff behind the scenes and all of that is not altogether clear. Uh, but but it does seem as though it was a a station of female voices, which for my purposes is particularly interesting because it's one of the areas of you know uh, focus for me is this this question of what did it mean to hear women's voices on the radio in in the 1930s and 1940s in South America or anywhere really. Um, so it's a, it's kind of an exciting sort of thing to imagine because there are no recordings we have no audio of this radio station uh, as far as i know nothing there's nothing so all we can do is really imagine what it sounded like but and and what have you found as far as the reception to the station what what did people write about uh what's what's your feeling about who was listening to the station and how yeah, is it you know understood yeah it's difficult i mean really those of us who work on Latin American radio in this time period, certainly in the two countries that I know best, we have to rely really heavily on the kind of radio press, you know, these radio guides and radio magazines, because that's about all that has survived. Um, The station was certainly described at some point in one of the Argentine radio magazines as a, quote, unexpected success. Hmm. Um, so because there was also an attempt, a failed attempt to copy the format in Buenos Aires, one that did not really take and did not work for reasons that are not entirely clear, but it, it didn't, it didn't take. Um, so I think, um, it, it had a certain amount of appeal, um, beyond that it's, it's extremely difficult. There were no, um, the first, anything that would come close to a kind of listener, a survey or poll that I ever came across for Uruguay is in the 1950s. There's, you know, there, there's just nothing available in terms of trying to get a sense. Um, the, but the local Uruguayan radio press uh, was very positive about the station. They went on and on about how it was elevating the cultural level of broadcasting in the city and, you know, really, uh, you know, played it up in, 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 a, very, in a very positive way uh, until the, you know, the next, until the whole Nazi thing comes up. <laughs> Right. Things change. Yeah. Well, and and during the, you know, there's a period where they're airing some radical material, feminist material and activist material. Uh, What what have you read about reception to that material? Uh, Was it controversial? Uh, Was it um, exciting for people? 
Well, again, as far as we can tell, getting at reception is really difficult. Um, So most of that in this, I mean, the the most substantive and I would say sympathetic of the the Uruguayan radio periodicals was this official radio guide, as it was called. Um, And they mostly were quite um, sympathetic, quite supportive um, and quite strongly endorsed the station and its content. Um, A lot of the more, what I would say, the more popular radio press didn't pay as much attention to that station. I mean, they, they, you know, their their focus was more on, uh, you know, celebrity and entertainment and things like that, as opposed to Radio Femenina, which had more of a reputation of being more of an intellectual station. So it's difficult to get um, access to, to any kind of um, reception or, or sense of things from, from those publications. It's a, little, it's a little more tricky. Yeah. And was it, is it being marketed, was it being marketed as a station for a solely female audience or, you know, because you're talking about being perceived as an intellectual station. So I'm curious if any of the marketing, you know, was broader than just being aimed at women. Um, most of the marketing from what I saw was very much aimed at women, that it was presented as the station for women. And, um, but the station clearly for, um, aimed at a particular kind of woman at a particularly important moment. So this was the station for the, you know, the new women, the educated women who were, um, as I said before, preparing to exercise their voting rights for the first time. Who, uh, So it was a station that certainly also aimed at a kind of housewife listenership and certainly did have programming that, oh, you know, you might have women in the medical field talking about aspects of childcare or, um, you know, children's health and those sorts of things that might have aimed at a, a more domestic audience. There were, um, there, and there were also programs that did talk a lot about women in the workplace and also that, um, you know, really, um, endorsed the idea of that women could be mothers and be working professionals at the same time, you know, that these two things were not incompatible. So I I would say that in general, as far as we can tell, based on the content uh, or the type of programming that was being uh, put out there, that this was mostly aimed at a a, a more middle class, more educated female audience that also probably bled over into other groups, at least in these early stages. I think the station's formatting, the station's formatting changed a lot in its later years. We're talking about Radio Femenina, a very unique radio station that began in the 1930s in Uruguay, and we're on the line with Professor of History at the University of Louisville, Christine Eric. Uh, my name is Eric Klein, and we're also here with Radio Survivor uh, with Jennifer Waits. Christine, do you know of any other stations like this during this time period anywhere else in the world? I mean, it seems just very unusual to me. Um, I have not found an equivalent. The closest in the United States was a station 
uh, W-H-E-R yeah. that uh, went on the air in uh, Memphis in 1955 and billed itself as the first all-women's radio station in the world. And, and that kind of continued to be repeated in some of the early, some of the material that was written about that station. So I had to sort of correct that record a little bit. <laughs> but, we, yeah, um, we, love, we love correcting first claims here at Radio yes. Survivor. So. Yes. It's not, surprising, so I can't, it's not surprising that there would be a women, uh, like a, a radio station in the 50s in the United States that would not be aware that uh, out in South America someone else had done it first. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I try to be careful in my own writing. I just sort of say, as far as we know, yep. this was the first station. Um, but, you know, you had other, the closest equivalents other places would have been, um, you know, women's divisions in some of the European broadcasters, um, even though some of those things also come along a little later. And the Woman's Hour on the BBC starts in the 1940s. Um, but so as far as I know, and I would love to be corrected if someone out there knows more about it. Um, as far as I know, this is really the first time that anything like that was really attempted. Yeah, I mean, the only, you know, I've, I've dug into women's stations at women's colleges, and there were, there were certainly in the 1920s some radio stations at women's colleges and uh, even one at a finishing school of sorts in the early 1920s. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's a, so that's a different category. Um, and and I haven't been researching these, you know, bigger commercial radio stations. Right. So there's some under-the-radar stuff out there. And definitely um, women's colleges who are part of the intercollegiate broadcasting system building stations in the 1940s. But uh, I agree with you. It's hard to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Um, and, and I'm interested how you even found out about Radio Fe Radio Feminina because it sounds like there's very little material about it. So I'm I'm excited that you even ran across it. Yeah, and I, I sort of found out about it by accident. Um, I was interested... In before this, before this new project even got started, I was interested in the question of how politically active women's organizations in the 1920s and 30s in Uruguay had used, were using quote unquote new media. So uh, things like silent film and radio. And I knew that there was a very conservative elite Catholic, Catholic ladies league that um, was very involved in the Catholic radio station in Montevideo that was called Radio Jackson. And um, long story short, I ended up emailing somebody, got in touch with somebody who was working on radio at the time on the air at, at a radio station named Radio Sarandi in Montevideo. And he was the one who said to me, well, I don't know anything about this Catholic station, but if you're interested in this, in the topic of women in radio, you should really look at this Radio Femenina at this radio station. And I thought, wait, what? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> come back, wow. come again. So he was the one who really turned me in the direction of this station. And he actually, uh, at, a, at a visit, I visited Montevideo a couple of months after that email conversation. This was back in 2003. And he had me come on his, his radio show, which was a kind of morning show, kind of chat show. He said a lot of older people listen to my show. Uh. And, and so he, he just basically, you know, we 
talked about all kinds of things, um, but he also said that I was interested in learning about this station. And he said, you know, people in Uruguay are not like, it's not like in the United States. People don't want to call in and talk on the air. They're too shy to do that. But what they, at the end of this interview, the one of the people came out of the booth and just handed me a list of names and phone numbers. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Of, of people who had called in who, you know, remembered the station or who had worked on the station. And um, and so I sat down and went through all those phone numbers. And, you know, of course, a lot, some of them didn't yield very much, but others, um, you know, were very helpful, you know, gave me some very helpful information. Um, so it was it was a good starting point. Um, and and yeah, from there, it was just really trying to dig through the the archives such as they are in in the National Library in Uruguay, some material from the later period out of the U.S. archives, out of the State Department archives. Um, but it's all been very fragmentary and and pretty difficult to piece together. Wow. So unfortunately, and, and still, you know, so many things that so many unanswered questions about it, but I really and I'm imagining like some diary will show up that will have just some amazing content for you. There, there's got to be something out there, you know, letters, um, manifestos. I love, yeah, I love I the know. fact though that that um, Christine Eric, professor of history at the University of Louisville, that you went on the radio in Uruguay in Montevideo, it to to connect with the people who could help you with the project of working on your book. Uh, radio and the gendered soundscape women in broadcasting in Argentina and Uruguay in 1930 and 1950 uh, 1932 1950 I just think it's so um, it just puts a smile on my face that that going on the radio in in 2003 um, was part of the work to get your book written yeah and, and, and indeed really yeah part of the the start of the whole thing right um, with, yeah which was which was great and and somehow yeah felt very appropriate <laughs> So you you alluded to Radio Feminina sort of taking a turn. Is it time for that chapter where, sure, where you describe sure. what's happened following these sort of radical feminist days? What what, what transpires? And, well, what is the kind of what is the context for when the station existed? Maybe maybe tell me that first, and then tell, talk about how the station changed a bit. Right. So. Um, as I said, when the station went on the air in 1935, uh, we were still, Uruguay was still under this kind of mm, soft authoritarian regime. Um, and that begins to change in 1938. There are new elections um, and, and uh, somewhat of a move to the left in, in the country politically. And that is kind of reinforced by some other changes that happened in 1942. This is, um, related in part also to the larger regional context. Um, Argentina is is uh, much more um, oriented to the right, and there's a growing tensions between Argentina and the United States. This was exacerbated in with the military coup in Argentina in 1943, but even before that there were tensions. And so the United States also perceived Uruguay as a as an important ally in the region, um, all of that. So there was, there was that. Um, it also seems as though, depending on how much you, there, there's a lot of conspiracy material out there, and it, and I think there's probably something to it, although it may not be as 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 extreme as it was presented in the time. That there were a lot of various um, 
uh, conspiracies afoot um, involving the German community in, in Uruguay and, and, and supposedly some kind of plot to take over the government and turn Uruguay into an agricultural community of the uh, kind of agricultural colony of the Third Reich. Wow. Yeah. So um, there was a lot of back and forth that was going on during this time period. And um, this, of course, all up in the, the, the kind of the buildup to World War II. Um, one of the uh, climax moments of that um, was uh, one of the few things that sometimes people know about Uruguay, particularly people of a certain age, is the, the Battle of the River Plate or the Graf Spee incident in 1939, which was a a uh, German battleship that had gotten into some kind of a military confrontation with a British uh, ship. And so the German ship kind of limped its way into the harbor in Montevideo uh, to do repairs. And, uh, you know, according to international law at that point, Uruguay was still a declared neutral nation. They had um, a certain amount of time the German ship did to do its repairs. But of course, there were all of these allied ships waiting outside the harbor for the German ship to leave. And at some point, the, the German, the commander of this German ship just decides to take the ship out and scuttle it set it on fire and it burned for three days and people sat around and watched it but it really brought the war literally to people you know in 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 a way that um i think hadn't been so all of this is wrapped up with a, you know an increasingly um uh, complicated political context and in terms of radio and where radio feminina fits into this is that we start to see not only an increasing presence not initially on radio feminina but on other uh, stations uh, an increasing presence of pro-axis broadcasting so not just shortwave, but also on these longwave stations, you have, uh, you know, Hitler speeches and Mussolini speeches and all of these things that are actually being, that are being aired and being broadcast on various stations. And that is, you know, causing increased concern and um, various kinds of political crackdown. Um, originally, that was not, Radio Feminina was not participating in that, but that starts to change, it's, it, it seems, in about 1939, 1940. And it appears that that change also coincided with a change in ownership. Mm -hmm. So because we start to see, uh, whereas the main first name on the ownership of the station had been Vasquez, it now changes to Canepa. And Julio Canepa was also the owner of some of these other stations that were quite um, overtly pro-axis in their orientation. So I think there's a sale that happens and there is a brief, there is some brief moments in which Radio Feminina is airing. They air Hitler and Mussolini. They try to compensate for it by airing a speech by Neville Chamberlain and the Pope or something. Um, this, in terms of reception, going back to your earlier question, it does seem that people are angry about this. <laughs> this, is, this is not what uh, the station's uh, listenership wants to hear, right? Yeah. They're not, you know, they don't want to hear all of this um, uh, you know, pro-axis uh, things. Authoritarian, um, like fascist male dictators from Europe making speeches on a radio station that was for women's voices. Right, and which yeah. had been, and which had very much been a an outlet for important female anti-fascist activists like Paulina Luisi, who was a leading feminist and anti-fascist. Um, so this is a station whose political orientation by that point was, if anything, quite overtly anti-fascist and um, mm. 
So the station seems to have backed off from that, those, that programming, but uh, it was still um, enough, and I think just the ownership question was enough to get it caught up in the actual blacklisting of pro-axis stations that does start to happen in the early 1940s. And um, so it was really, there were three stations that were targeted and ultimately shut down, Radio Uruguay, Radio Artigas, Radio Femenina. So the blacklist, the station was blacklisted in, in somewhere around 1942, uh, which meant, which also means from a historian standpoint, it becomes incredibly difficult to retrace uh, what's going on because basically any ads, any announcements of the station in the radio press disappears. Uh, we, I, we, I do learn, you do learn from the, from the documentary record that the station, the three stations, Radio Uruguay, Radio Artigas, Radio Femenina, all lost their licenses, their broadcast licenses in 1944. Um, the other two, which had been the more serious um, pro-axis stations, Uruguay and Artigas, they lost their licenses permanently. Their frequencies were reassigned. And Radio Femenina did get their license back in 1945, um, but, um, you know, from that point, a kind of shadow of their former wow. selves and, and never really recuperated. And Christine, Eric, I just can't help but ask, because I've worked at radio stations before, and I can just imagine um, the stress and the struggle with a, with a Radio Femenina in Uruguay being what you, what you described as, like, a left-leaning station staffed by women, if not um, not entirely run by women, but at least um, it's just, I can't imagine the, I wonder if there's any information at all about what went on at the station, the struggle between airing what amounts to fascist propaganda on a station that, um, <laughs> where the people who work there uh, would be against that. So like, do we have anything, do we know what it felt like to work there? We just don't. I tried to, some of the people who I spoke to, um, I, there was one woman who, uh, you know, I got the list of numbers from when I was on the radio, who supposedly worked there at the time. I asked her about the blacklist. She just said, oh, you know, we didn't really take it seriously. It wasn't any big deal. I mean, it was just trying, which I'm sure was um, at a certain point not true, because I think, um I mean, the strategy of the blacklist was also to just kind of starve these stations uh, of, of everything. Um, I mean, not that I am sympathetic with the politics of the stations, but that was kind of the strategy, was to, to choke the stations off so that they had no more revenue, so that then when they came in and pulled the license, they could say, see, these stations aren't even really functioning. Mm. Oh, so the blacklist was primarily having advertisers pull out Exactly. Okay, exactly. Was this exactly. a government-sanctioned exactly. a government sanctioned blacklist or more... Yes. Blacklist. No, it was a okay. it was a government sa sanctioned blacklist. Yes. And so it but it but clearly it, it went in stages because part of when the actual decree comes down, shutting down the stations in 1944, part of the rationale is that these stations are really not functioning anyway, because right. they've been blacklisted for two years. So they uh, you know, they're not their programming is not being advertised. They probably are having difficulties getting sponsors and, and all of okay. those things. And it does mean that from my standpoint, once they disappear from these radio um, publications, it's very difficult to know what's going on. Yeah, as a historian, um, now you, you've yeah, lost you, you, touch. 
Right. The the U.S. State Department um, archives do help a little bit because they are paying pretty close attention. Um, the State Department and the FBI actually are paying pretty close attention to um, radio broadcasting in that part of the world. And so and they are certainly keeping track of what from their perspective is the political orientation of these stations. And so there is actually a few mentions of Radio Feminina, a couple of memos actually directed uh, to J. Edgar Hoover, which is pretty interesting. Wow. Um, and that basically say, yeah, this station has been um, accused of being pro access but there's really nothing and and yes some of the owners are a problem because it's some of the same owners in these other stations but really you know radio feminina there's there's nothing content wise that oh. is of any concern um, was was the united states broadcasting into uruguay at that time also through through some of their radio stations uh where they were you know like i'm thinking of voice of america and other projects like that coming from the United States? Well, the way a lot of it was working um, during this time was the um, Office of Inter-American Affairs, which was a Nielsen Rockefeller agency uh, that um, was overseeing a lot of different U.S. government kind of diplomatic and propaganda activities in Latin America during World War II. The um, it had a radio division, and so what they were doing among one of the things they were doing, they were doing a lot of things, but part of what they were doing was creating programming that um, was getting placed on local commercial stations. So the idea was you 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 either develop you either put together a script or you have a pre-recorded program. They did things both ways, and then you bring the entire program to whatever commercial radio stations and have them air it. And basically, you pay them. So that was the incentive. Say, we'll pay you X amount of of money to you know put this broadcast on the air. And it was a kind of form of what we might think of as sort of gray propaganda, right? It was not certainly not announced. This is a program that was developed, um, you know, by the United States government, <laughs> but it was also fairly clearly pro-U.S. propaganda. Mm. So there was a good deal of that going on. There, there had been an attempt, um, one of my uh, fellow Latin American radio historians, uh, Gisela Kramer, has written much more about this, um, but there was an attempt to, by the U.S. government to construct a big radio station in Uruguay that was really meant to aim at Argentina, um, because that was the, the U.S. government's biggest concern was, was Argentina, uh, and that plan fell apart. And, uh, and so they kind of just continued with these, a combination of short of shortwave broadcasts. There were certainly plenty of shortwave being beamed into Latin America and then various kinds of longwave uh, programs being placed on local stations. And all of this was meant to um, compete with what U.S. government documents clearly state were the superior uh, and earlier German radio propaganda programs that had were were very much uh had you know were were on the ground in latin america right. well before the united states government got into the game and christine eric you you described earlier today on radio survivor that the station radio feminina in uruguay um was somewhat at least a part of that propaganda uh effort by by basically fascist sympathizers or or, or worse uh 
they they did air Hitler speeches, but then um, you've also described that Radio Feminina, uh, that the staff at least, or a lot of the broadcasters, or even the audience was uh, resistant to that, not interested in the fascist propaganda, and preferred what Radio Feminina's uh, uh, truer voice was. I'm going to say, which was, um, as you described, like programming for more for housewives. But so so did it did it survive this blacklist, this period where where it was tainted by by having Hitler speeches on the radio? Um, It's a hard question to answer. Once, so once Radio Feminina appears to have regained its broadcasting license towards the end of the war, uh, so right in around May of 1945, they seem to have regained their license. Um, But the other thing that had happened in the intervening time, this goes back to the question of U.S. government Mm, you know, uh, interventions in in Uruguayan broadcasting. One of the stations that really benefited the most from the support of the U.S. government was a station called Radio Carve. It's a station that still exists and is still important in Montevideo. It before World War II, it was a leading station, but by the end of World War II and for many years after that, it was the dominant radio station. It had that that uh, listener survey that I mentioned to you from the 1950s. Radio Carve had something like two-thirds of the audience share or something. Um, so all other stations, and Radio Feminina included, were really struggling to, uh, you know, just have a few percentage of the of the listenership i mean you know everything else was really everybody else was in the shadow of radio carve um so what what appears to have happened what i learned i was never able to really confirm directly but what i learned from one of the um people i i spoke to on the telephone one of the the listeners uh was a man who told me that in the 1960s and especially in the 19 yeah, 1950s and 1960s, he said, oh, all of us young people listen to Radio Feminina because uh, it had the best jazz library in the city. Huh. So, and, and indeed, this survey from the 1950s seems to suggest that by that point, the listenership of the station, as small as it was, was uh, younger and more male um, than a lot of other um, radio stations, and, and this was uh, a and and this is unique because this was one of the only uh, stations in the world that um, that centered women's voices on the air. Right, but it seemed in to have really in the nineteen thirties and forties. Exactly. So by the fifties and sixties, they seem to have found a little niche as you know the the kind of hipster jazz station sure. <laughs> um, of the fifties and sixties. But um, I, you know, more I have been unable to to get any more information about that as wow. as as fascinating as it is. And it appears that the station remained on the air until the early nineteen seventies. Um, so probably up to the next military coup in, 19, in, in the 1970s, the military dictatorship that took over uh, in Uruguay then, there I have heard, but again, not much confirmation. Um, so one of the main leftist uh, guerrilla organizations, urban guerrilla organizations operating in, in Uruguay in the in the late 60s and early 1970s were the, a group called the Tupamaros. And one, and the Tupamaros were very, um, they did a lot of 
kind of what they called armed propaganda, a lot of very kind of theatrical type of things. And one of their tactics that I would love to know more about um, is, is the kind of takeover, the kind of hacking into, I guess, and taking over of radio frequencies. Mm-hmm. And I have, there have been sort of anecdotal reports that Radio Feminina's frequency was one that they used a lot. Huh. Oh. So and they would they would basically pirate right onto that frequency that already had an existing audience and exactly. uh, broadcast their particular version of uh, revolutionary propaganda in Uruguay. Exactly, Jeez. exactly, and nice and story. so, and so whether or not you know how common that was, whether Radio Feminino was a particular uh, favorite. Uh, frequency for that, whether there was any, uh, you know, whether they were, um, you know, in some ways, um, you know, okay with that, with, with allowing themselves to be used that way, whether that is connected to what seems to be the final shutdown of the station around that same time. Wow. Um, these are all still questions that remain to be answered. Um, there, the whole question of, of media and especially radio in military dictatorship is is there have been some things written on it not so much it's one of the uh, topics I'm actually quite interested in um, now and uh, you know one of these days I'll get a chance to dig into some of these there are some of these secret police archives and things like that that have been made available in recent years and uh, to to kind of dig in and see if there's anything see what's there um, wow I am about about radio during that time it's just it's just fascinating to think about all these threads and there's so much that we haven't talked about about the entire radio landscape but but just focusing on on how these stations are functioning during these these times of of radical change is is pretty interesting to see how the media intersects with that yeah um yeah one one thing that you mentioned a bit was the border aspect of of these stations like Radio Feminina that that also broadcast into Argentina. And maybe if you could briefly talk about what that's like, what is the situation like for border radio in this region? Well, it's it is a topic that I I am um, I've been working on more recently, um, and it's it's a pretty interesting one because indeed, especially this is of course all AM radio, so the broadcast range is pretty is pretty big, right? And so and and especially Montevideo and Buenos Aires are not very far apart from each other. They kind of sit diagonally across the the Rio de la Plata estuary from each other, so. Um, there was no question that um, there was cross-listening listening back and forth. Um, and that also, at times, became a source of a lot of tension, um, especially because Montevideo has always or often been a city of exiles from various places, but certainly, um, especially once you have first the military coup in Argentina in 1943, which was a kind of right-wing nationalist military uh, junta that came to power. And it is from that junta that you have the rise to prominence of Juan Perón. And and then, of course, the most famous voice from that part of the world, uh, you know, his wife Evita, most famous female voice. 
Um, but you had a lot of, uh, particularly a lot of entertainment people, a lot of radio and movie people who start leaving Argentina and uh, settling in other places. Some of them went to places like Mexico City, but a lot of them settled much more, you know, nearby in Montevideo. And there was a lot of anti, especially as we get past Perón's election in 1946, you know, into the post-war period, there's a great deal of anti-Peronist radio propaganda being produced and broadcast from stations in Montevideo, but also in some of the areas um, more on the, the kind of Uruguayan literal. So one of the stations that I've been trying to work on and reconstruct the history of is a station known as Radio Colonia, which is in the city of Colonia del Sacramento, which is really more right immediately across the river from Buenos Aires, uh, so you know quite close. And Radio Colonia, among other stations, was an important mouthpiece in the 1940s for uh, anti-Peronist propaganda. It was a source of an enormous amount of tension between the the Uruguayan and the Argentine government. Um, lots of kind of threats and saber rattling coming from Argentina uh, of of you know threats of invasion if the Uruguayan government doesn't shut down these you know treasonous broadcasts and those sorts of things. So, um, and that. Um, and that kind of continues. We can talk about that later if you um, you know continues into the period of military dictatorship in the 1970s. So it's a big it's a big long um, topic and a super fascinating one. It's amazing the power of radio. You know, <laughs> yeah. It, when people discount radio's influence when you're talking about these border blaster stations and in, in regions, you know, with. Um, in situations like this, it's it's just so obvious that that radio has a lot of power. Yeah, and it's and it's it's you know, and it was very important. Um, I mean, as I said, Radio Colonia continued to be an opposition radio station during the period of military dictatorship in the 1970s. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that Uruguay itself was under a military dictatorship, theoretically supposedly allied with the you know, right-wing military dictatorship across the river in Argentina, yet um, this station was allowed to broadcast. It's, um, mm. you know, which I is the biggest question that I'm still trying to, you know, it's the biggest head-scratcher <laughs> as to why uh, they were allowed. Well, in, yeah, in, in both countries, in Uruguay and Argentina, um, how, how tight of a control do, do the governments have over the content of broadcasts? Well, I mean, in that period, it was pretty tight. Uh, you know, it was it was much looser in the in the earlier period. Certainly, uh, you know, in the 30s, there was very limited control. It starts to become get much more, uh, you know, is is tightened significantly during World War II, right? During during the 1940s, um, but. You know, during the military dictatorship in the 70s, again, everything is a caveat in as much as we know at this point, because <laughs> there are things we don't quite understand. Um, in theory, Radio Colonia's broadcasts were had to meet with the approval of the local military base that was in the area, so, which begs the questions of, well, why, why, why were, were, were they allowing it? And what did that tell us about relationships between these two military governments, which just may have been more complicated than maybe we perceive. Or, um, But from what I've heard from people who know a little bit about this subject, they said, you know, it's just the, the question of who was allowed to remain on the air and who wasn't during the military period of military rule 
did not seem to obey any clear political logic. And so there may have been other factors involved, whether it was about, you know, financial, you know, who paid bribes or who didn't or uh, what. Dinner party friendships. Dinner party friendships, political connections. Right. So there's there are other there probably are other variables involved and, um, you know, trying to get in there and get answers to it. But but going back to your point, Jennifer, I mean, I've had people uh, in in Argentina who I was at a conference a few years ago and people were coming up to me saying, you're oh, you're you're working on Radio Colonia. I remember that station. It was so important. It was the only way that you knew what was going on. And they said, you know, especially, and I've read this in other books where people would, uh, you know, say, well, in Argentina, you know, you knew something really bad was going down, uh, you know, during this time because you turned on all your, all the radio stations and the only thing that was being aired were military marches. Wow. And so you knew some, like some, you know what, is going down big, right? And they said that's when everybody would rush over, try to tune into Radio Colonia to try to find out what was really happening. To get, to get the radio uh, station across the border from Uruguay. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. To, to find out what's, what's actually going on. And wow. um, similar stories about during the Falklands War in the early 80s. Um, because people, you know, they were getting the official kind of military government line on the radio stations in Argentina. But they said, but if you tuned into Radio Colonia, you might actually, you know, get some more accurate information. That's the voice of Christine Eric, professor of history at the University of Louisville, author of the book, Radio and the Gendered Soundscape, Women and Broadcasting in Argentina and Uruguay, 1930 to 1950. You're listening to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein, and we're joined also by Jennifer Waits. So as we're recording this on International Women's Day, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about our radio predecessors, our female radio predecessors in Latin America and, and what they might think of, of radio today and, and why we should be thinking about their contributions back in the 1930s and beyond. Well, I really think um, that this question of women's voices, period, and women's voices on the radio is a, a really important and I, and I would say often overlooked question in a lot of the the literature, both on radio, but also in areas of kind of uh, women's history and feminist scholarship. Um, we have tended to focus our attention on on text. When we talk about women's voice, we're often, you know, a lot of the feminist scholarship is really talking about text and discourse, which is all fine. But if we but, but by using that term, we often then forget about the actual voice and the kind of question of uh, you know, vocal gender and the the simple question of what it meant for women's voices to be in the public sphere. Um, I mean, in in the most simple terms, right? I mean, the concept of of patriarchy is is you know first and foremost about um, men's voices speaking for everybody else, right? And and women's voices being silenced or 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 confined to a domestic kind of space. So radio comes along precisely at a time when women are speaking out and challenging older restrictions. Right? I mean, you have the first radio station in the United States comes on the air the same year that women get the right to vote. So these things are really coinciding with each other historically. And so I think 
think it is something worthy of more examination, especially because when we look at the material, whether it's in Latin America, the United States, or Europe, or I'm sure elsewhere as well, when women began to um, speak on the radio, it was usually a source of controversy. There was a lot of conversation in various places about how women's voices just didn't sound good on the air. Wow. And, and Never you know, heard that's that so wrong. <laughs> So yeah, and exactly. These are things that have, you know, of course, continued to live with us, right? We have, we still have these questions in, you know, in our political landscape, yeah. right? Um, and, and all, so it still matters, and right? I, this, I mean, I just, this... just yesterday on Twitter, I, I, I was, I'm following some podcaster, I can't remember their name, but a woman podcaster who podcasts with a man and uh, listed off all of the criticisms they've received via email from their quote unquote fans about how their voice, uh, is uh, has a problem. They, everyone has a men have a problem with her voice on the podcast, and uh, they very very they never uh, offer the same criticisms to her male co-host. Exactly, and that's, and exactly. that's podcasting. Yeah, yeah, and and um, so these things um, just. Um, I have a quote in my book from, uh, you know, a few years ago from um, from 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 This American Life, where Ira Glass is talking about this kind of vocal fry thing, and he says, "Look, you know, we all talk like this." He said, "But some of the most some of the angriest um, complaints we get is about the sound of some of the women's voices that are on the show." And so it is something that has that is still very much with us and, and, and in many ways things that we're just not even that aware of, right? We don't pay that much attention to it. Could so you, um, go ahead. Could you just briefly define I know we talked about vocal fry way back in an episode with <laughs> We've Jenny Stover. About vocal fry a couple yeah. times. <laughs> with Jenny Stover of the Sounding Out blog. But it, could you just do a quick definition of vocal fry? Sure. So it is that. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a Californian, so I think of it as that sort of valley girl, that kind of you know guttural uh, you know thing, of um, that that is um, you know in some cases described as as women sort of dropping their voices into a register below which they can you know they they, they below which speech can comfortably take place. Thus, you get that kind of you know, uh, vibration that you can kind of hear. Um, but, um, you know, so it is, and it is something that you certainly do hear in, in broadcast voices and young yeah. and women's voices. Um, but the question becomes, right, the, the question of what's annoying is, of course, you know, this very culturally constructed thing, right? What's, you know, <laughs> what is considered, uh, you know, hard on the ears or all of that. Um, in radio's early days, especially in the United States, the complaints about women's voices were the reverse. The complaints were that women's voices were too high pitched and that their voices were then distorted and sounded bad on the radio. Huh. Um, so, it, you know, the, the question becomes, you know, separating out what is the actual sound quality of the voice versus how we hear that sound um, and that we still hear women's voices, especially voices speaking with some kind of authority as a little out of place, right, as, as needing to um, explain or justify itself, right? Um, and if women's voices aren't heard, then it's hard for people to hear them or contextualize them. Right. So, so it makes sense that these complaints might happen if it if it seems like an anomaly, like, oh, I, I don't normally hear women on the radio, so it sounds very odd to me and I don't know how to interpret it. 
Right, right. So, um, I mean, going back to your other question of what, you know, these women would, would think about the, you know, the, the state of radio now, I would think they would be pleased, right, that we certainly have, despite the fact that a lot of the complaints about, you know, women's voices and vocal fry and all of those things persist, um, certainly we've seen some improvements in, <laughs> in, yeah. uh, in, that, in that situation. I, but, I, will, um, I will go out on a limb and declare that a much more 2012 um, type problem than a 2019 problem, but you know we can right, always backslide. Right. I, I I had another. Um, there was another um, from a, from another podcast um, from um, which had had um, made the observation. It was one of those things. I was I was actually out for a run, and I sort of stopped in my tracks to remember this quote because they had said that two. It was the quote was two things that we hear more now. Uh, in our own speech or, you know, in our own soundscape than we used to are women's voices and cursing. Ah. <laughs> which I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting to kind of also put those two things next to each other and think about, exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the sense of vulgarity, right, that women's voices often perceived as this out of place thing that doesn't belong in the public realm, right, in the same way as F-bombs or something, I don't know. <laughs> right. Wow. That's, Yeah. Fascinating juxtaposition there. Yeah, yeah. Christine Eric, you're professor of history at University of Louisville, author of the book Radio and the Gendered Soundscape, Women and Broadcasting in Argentina, Uruguay, 1930 to 1950. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor today to talk about uh, a little bit, just a little bit about Radio Feminina, that amazing radio station. Well, thank you. It was, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to get to talk about it. Thanks again to Jennifer Waits for producing today's episode. My name is Eric Klein. You've been listening to Radio Survivor. We here, we are here for the love of radio and sound. We cover the world of community radio, college radio, radio history uh, across the globe. And if you want to learn more, listen to past episodes, you can go check us out at radiosurvivor.com. This radio program that you're listening to on the airwaves is also a podcast, and you can you can re-listen or subscribe for free forever uh, on the podcast catcher of your choice. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments, feedbacks, or suggestions, our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. In the couple of minutes we have left, I just want to share that Today's episode of Radio Survivor that you heard on the air today or online, we recorded an hour-long interview with Christine Eric, and then Jennifer Waits and Christine Eric uh, had another 27-minute-long conversation, more about the um, well, the deep, more more about like what they do and the deeply personal nature of it. It was definitely more of a podcast-style interview than a radio interview, and uh, you know, both Christine Eric and Jennifer Waits, uh, they know each other from their work on the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is dedicated to um, lifting up the notion of preserving the sound of radio and the history of radio. And uh, here's, here's a little clip of that conversation. I mean, I'm coming at this from the historian's perspective, and I think part of it is, you know, one of the keys to convincing institutions and funding sources that 
the preservation of these radio archives matters is also to convince my fellow historians that it matters. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. Because, you know, we still have a tendency to focus on text and, you know, we still have people who might teach entire courses about the United States in the middle of the 20th century and barely talk about radio. Right. Much less use it in the classroom. <laughs> so, um, you know, so part of it is also about trying to, you know, raise awareness and because you have to get people to use this stuff in order to convince anyone that it matters. So again, just a clip of a 27-minute long uh, post-interview interview with Christine Eric and Jennifer Waits, which is available to uh, supporters of Radio Survivor. If you want to learn more, please visit radiosurvivor.com support. Well, my name is Eric Klam. On behalf of Matthew Lassar, Jennifer Waits, and Paul Reese-Mendel, uh, thank you so much for listening to Radio Survivor. See you next week.